welcome. And if they get a little too fussy, just by way of reminder, dads, you can uh, serve mom by just taking a little one out for a couple of minutes, getting them settled, and then bringing them uh, back in. Uh, We have for some time been going through um, just paragraph by paragraph our Confession of Faith, which is uh, the London Confession of Faith, known as the 1689, uh, Second London Confession of Faith. And we've been working through chapter 10 over the last several weeks, which deals with effectual calling. And, uh, and these are in the pew in front of you. You're more than welcome to grab a copy. And if you don't have a copy, you can keep the copy that you find. But um, paragraph four of chapter 10, dealing with effectual calling, it says this, those who are not elected will not and cannot truly come to Christ, and they can't be saved because they're not effectually drawn by the Father. They may even be called by the ministry of the Word and may receive some ordinary working of the Spirit without being saved. Much less can anyone be saved who does not receive the Christian religion, no matter how diligently they live their lives according to the light of nature and the teachings of the religion that they profess. And uh, so I send an email out each Thursday to the members just to give a little bit of commentary to the paragraphs. And I wanted to give you kind of four things. I gave them more than this, but four summary statements uh, or four things that I wanted to highlight from this passage or put it a different way to help us better understand it. And so the first is this, which we're reminded of each and every Lord's Day, which is that salvation, it's all of grace. Nobody deserves to be saved, that even one person is saved is God's doing. So sinners, rebels, or children of wrath, as the scriptures say, they have to be called by God and given a new heart, which is the Spirit's work alone, in order to be saved. That's the only way that salvation is made possible. And apart from that, none of us, you or me, can be saved. The fact that we can confess Christ, the fact that we can confess our sin and walk in repentance, even that is all of grace. And so salvation, all of it, being saved, persevering, it's all of God's doing in our life. Uh, We have no bragging rights when we enter the kingdom of God. Secondly, those whom the Father draws, and we see this particularly evident in John chapter 6, but those whom the Father draws, they're truly converted, and they'll receive a resurrection, a bodily and eternal resurrection like that of Jesus, a resurrection into everlasting peace with God. Third, there are some people who do not demonstrate overt rebellion against God and who even participate in the life of the visible church. And by that, I mean participate in the Word, participate in prayer, participate in sacrament, the ordinary means of grace. But they won't persevere because they truly never belong to God. They may have belonged to a visible church as expressed by a, through a local church, but they were never a part of the invisible church. They were never really reconciled with God through Jesus. You see the author of Hebrews speak of this, Hebrews chapter 6. And then the fourth, just clarifying comment, clarifying thought, if you will, But those who all their lives live in overt rebellion against God by living against the light of nature, right? Living against how God's world works, right? Um, They do this because they don't belong to God and they're settled in their sins. And, uh, And every call to repentance only hardens and embitters them more toward God. And so in all of this, right, I would point us to a passage of Scripture, Isaiah chapter 55, right? Some words of the Lord that we should remember. 
Well, God, through the prophet Isaiah, he says, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth, and it shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it will prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Isaiah 55, 11. And so our sovereign Lord, who is, we need to be reminded of, is good. Right? We serve a good God. It's good that our salvation is in the hands of a good God, right? Um, but our sovereign Lord accomplishes His holy will. So, so that is paragraph 4 of chapter 10 of our confession. If you have your Bibles, though, turn with me to the book of Colossians. That's where we're going to primarily hang out at this morning, the book of Colossians. And we're going to look at <clears throat> chapter 1, and particularly we're going to camp out in verses 15 to 18. So Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. I'm going to read our passage of Scripture, and then I'm going to pray, and then we will, by God's grace, consider this, these few verses together this morning. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he wrote these words to a church called Colossae. He, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He's before all things, and in Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who was the beginning, the firstborn. We see that word again, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. We go to the Lord in prayer together. God, we thank You for allowing us together as your church body and to spend time in your word together, to spend time singing together, to spend time praying, and in a moment, Lord, coming to the table. Lord, what a gift, what a treasure it is to do that. So thank you, Lord, and I pray that over the next few minutes as we consider Christ as creator, that you would, by your Spirit, give us understanding that you would warm our affections for you, our triune God. And Lord, that in turn, you would shape our lives. God, that you would increase our joy, our delight in you. And we pray all this dependent upon you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. And this morning, I'm, uh, as many of you know, beginning uh, just a, a short series for, on Christmas, uh, since it's Christmas season. And, and this series is going to focus, we, we concluded a couple of weeks ago for the year, our series in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to pick that up, Lord willing, the end of January, the beginning of February. Um, but for the month of December, we are going to consider Jesus as creator, Jesus as prophet, and as priest and as king, and, and what that means for us. And I wanted us, and, and for many of us, we're familiar with here when we hear about Christ, we, we're perhaps familiar with hearing uh, about Christ as our prophet, priest, and king. But I wanted us to begin the series by considering Jesus as our creator and to really press that out to its edges. Because if we acknowledge him as creator, right, or Maybe I'll put it in the negative. If we reject Christ 
as creator, we are at the same time rejecting his eternality, which kids, I mean, by using that word eternality, I mean his foreverness. Like he, he's, there's never been a time where in which Christ has not existed. He has always existed, right? Uh, and so we reject Christ as creator. We reject that Christ is God. And if we reject that he's God, then we reject that we are accountable to him. And then in doing so, we reject the gospel itself, which is that God alone satisfied God's righteous fixed law so that sinners, sinners like me, right, sinners like you, right, creatures, right, so that we could all be reconciled, so that we could be saved, we could be brought into right relationship with the triune God. And for the role of creator, I've chosen as my primary text, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18, because I think that the Apostle Paul, again, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he demonstrates Jesus as creator clearly, even though I could take us to different passages that demonstrate that. But it's a text like Colossians that allows us to read a passage like Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and we can say, we can read it rightfully as in the beginning, God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit created the heavens and the earth. This section in Colossians has been called by many uh, a hymn in honor of Christ. And these verses, maybe you notice, they have a sort of rhythmical prose to them uh, that was so common, so characteristic in early Christianity. So I, I don't think that it's a stretch to say that the Apostle Paul not only witnessed the glory of God in Christ Jesus, but uh, that this would have been a common testimony, even some of the, the language that Paul is using here. This would have been a familiar testimony about Jesus in the early church. Now, before we get to our text, let me just speak a little bit more about Jesus being the eternal God. Because at Christmas time, we're more mindful uh, of Christ, right? Our culture, our society is more mindful of Jesus, or at least the birth of Jesus. And it's true that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, right? We recite that. Where do we recite that every week? Man, you guys would flunk this. <laughs> we recite it in the Apostles' Creed every week, right? He was born of the Virgin Mary, right? But it's just as true, and it's a distinguishing aspect of Christianity to say that Jesus did not begin when he was born of the Virgin Mary. Rather, we're celebrating at Christmas, and kids, I want you to listen closely to this, right? We're celebrating at Christmas the reality that the eternal God, right, the Creator, He became a man. So the birth of Jesus that we are mindful of and rightly say it's not the beginning of Jesus. The birth of Jesus is preaching to us that the eternal God, the second person of the Trinity, He took on flesh, He became truly human like you and me, and He dwelt among us. He tab we tab talked about this a couple of week weeks ago. He uh, tabernacled among us so that He might save us, so that He might seek sinners, right? So if you're a sinner this morning, there's good news for you in this. The Apostle Paul, he, he gets at this elsewhere in another one of his letters. In the book of Philippians, we see in chapter 2, verses 7 
and aid, another kind of hymn-like saying. But we see that um, the Apostle Paul remind the church of Philippi, he says, but he made himself, speaking of Jesus, of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, which can also be translated as slave, and coming into the likeness of man. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So to confess Jesus as creator is to confess him as the eternal God who came close to us, right? So I want us to see that right up front this morning. He came close to us so that he could redeem us through his blood. Now, for those of you that are not familiar with the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians, again, it's a letter from the Apostle Paul to a church called Colossae. And this was a church that was uh, seemingly established as a result of the Apostle Paul's missionary journey. There was a man named Epaphras who was converted, uh, I think, under the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and he was the man who planted this church. Uh, And this particular letter is one that Paul wrote from a Roman prison. And compared to other letters the Apostle Paul wrote, this is a relatively short letter. It's four chapters. You can read it easily in one sitting. Now, the text that we're looking at is obviously the beginning of the letter. If we were to survey the whole letter, we would see uh, in Pauline fashion that he reminds this church, first and foremost, of the excellencies of Christ Jesus and how they have and also how we have redemption through the blood of Jesus alone. And then he goes to warn of false teaching that's making its rounds in this particular church. And it's a false teaching that undermined Christ's role in the life of the believers. And we see uh, as much in chapter 2. You don't have to turn there, but I'm just going to read it to you, verses 6 to 10. He says, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, as you've received him, so walk in him, right? Keep, go, keep going in that direction. Is what he, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Then he gives the caution, beware lest anyone cheat you. There's an interesting use of that word. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ, for in Him, in Christ, and this is explicit for us, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you're complete in Him, who's the head of all principality and power. And so what we see in Colossians is Paul commending a way of life that is mindful of and dependent on Christ, who is the giver and sustainer of everything. Paul quite literally says, in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So we see clarity. We see conviction um, in the way in which the Apostle Paul is writing and warning this church that was so near and dear to his heart. Now, so that's a little bit of context for us, but with that in mind, let's back up to our primary text together. And if you're taking notes, and kids, you can Fill the blank, you know, fill in the blank here, look on with your mom and dad. But if you're taking notes, there are three things I want us to see. And the first is this, Jesus is over all things. And these are three things as it relates to Jesus as our creator. Again, this is going to fall under that. But Jesus is over all things, right? And in this, Jesus, the Apostle Paul is setting Jesus against 
these deceptive philosophies that were permeating the church of Colossae, that were making their rounds there. Look back at verses 15 and 16. He's the image, or I'll just read verse 15 for, for the moment. He's the image of the invisible God, because I want to spend the bulk of our time here. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And I think it's important for us to break this down a little bit, uh, because this is where, say, uh, like a, uh, uh, a Jehovah's Witness would go and claim that Jesus is not God. And I don't know if you get those handwritten letters now in the mail from a Jehovah's Witness, but we get those regularly this time of year. But, um, <clears throat> but this is where they would go, and others like them, to say that Jesus is not God, to say that Jesus is not the creator of everything that is visible and invisible. But first, let's look at the, uh, Paul saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, which is an important, that's an important connection to the second phrase, which is the firstborn of overall creation, which I'll address in a moment. But what does it mean that Jesus is the image of the invisible God? What perhaps comes to our minds uh, first and foremost when we're considering this is that we're image bearers, right? You and I are image bearers. We were created in the image of God. We see that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, right? So God created man in his own what? Image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. In the Genesis account, right, we see Adam and Eve, right, the, the first people God created, we see them unstained by sin. And, and they were created in God's image. And, and what qualities are indicative of one being created in the image of God. And there's been a lot of debate about that in the theological world, but I think the Genesis account, it clues us in on what it means to be an image bearer primarily if we look just at the very next verse in Genesis 1. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Right? In effect, God told Adam and Eve to have a dominion, which means to, to, to rule over the earth, and they were to do so in a way that testified to their Creator, to the triune God. In other words, their ruling was to be one that sent a clear signal that they were God's authorized representatives. And he told them to do this in a very specific way. He told them to be fruitful and multiply, which is literally to have children. But implicit in this charge to have children to have is to have offspring that would participate in this dominion commission, if you will, that was given by God. In other words, the physical posterity was to be, at the same time, spiritual posterity, spiritual children of God who kept God's commandments and sought to subdue the earth in the name of the triune God. So what we see in Genesis is that Adam and Eve were to take dominion of the whole earth, right? to, to, to take what was in Eden and to spread it out, and to, in doing so, to subdue or to capture, if you will, the earth. They were going to build something in God's name that would culminate in the eradication of the serpent or the dragon. Who was who? Satan. Right? Now, regardless of what else being an image bearer means, this is primarily 
what a true image bearer was to do. But did that happen? It didn't happen, right? We know the rest of the story, right? Instead of crushing the serpent's head, Adam took the fruit of the tree of the knowledge and good, of good and evil that was given to him by his wife, right? A, tr- a tree that God commanded that he and Eve not eat from. He took it, and in taking it, right, he sought to claim his independence from God, right? That he was autonomous, right? I don't think it's a coincidence that all the rave, especially in Western society, is autonomy, right? That's as old as the garden here, right? But he proclaimed in taking and eating that he knew better than God, and the result of that was a marring of the Imago Dei, of the image of God in him, right? And in in everyone that he represented, Eve and the rest of us, right? Every other person ever born. Since the fall of Adam, the image of God, it's been marred in us, We're born with a sin nature. We're born hostile toward God and His law. We are, according to the Scripture, by nature, children of wrath, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, which again, this is why effectual calling, the paragraph that I just read a moment ago in the confession, is so important. But this isn't the case with Jesus. This isn't the case with Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the perfect unmarred image of God. And this speaks both to the humanity of Jesus and it speaks to the deity of Jesus as well. As it relates to Jesus' humanity, we see that he's the second Adam. We see that in Romans 5, for instance. He came to do what the first Adam should have done, right? He came and he crushed the head of the serpent through his humiliation, right? Through him taking on flesh, through him going to the cross. And then in his exaltation, through his bodily an eternal resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the Father. But Jesus came, and He was fruitful, and He multiplied in the sense that His person and work made adoption into the family of God possible. Right? His resurrection and His ascension preached to us that He's conquered, that He is conquering, or He is subduing, that He's taking dominion of the earth. And He's given us His spiritual children, which we become when we repent and trust in Christ alone for salvation. But He's given us a job and His authority right, to make disciples, to give those disciples a Trinitarian baptism, to, to teach them to obey all that God's Word has said, and to remember as we do so that He's with us. Right? And we're to do this all in the authority of Christ. That's why verse 18 is so significant for this great commission that He has given us. But we also see the deity of Christ in the words of the Apostle Paul. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Invisible God. This cannot be said of us in the way that it is said of Jesus. Right? This can only be said of someone who's not just man, but is the eternal God. This can only be said of someone who is the creator. Elsewhere, Paul says that Jesus is the brightness of the glory of God in the exact imprint or the precise image, if you will, of his person. You see that in Hebrews 1.3. One commentator says it this way, to say that Christ is the image of God is to say that in him the nature and being of God have been perfectly revealed, that in him the invisible has become visible. No one has ever seen God, John chapter 1, verse 18. Yet John tells us that Jesus said of himself that he who has seen me has seen who? 
the Father, John 14, 9. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God. This is something that truly can only be said of God. This is something that can only truly be said of the Creator. But there's a second phrase right to that passage that we need to give specific attention to, and it's the firstborn over all creation. Firstborn over all creation. As I said a moment ago, this is often the place where people uh, get hung up and where those who subscribe to something like Jehovah's Witness um, beliefs, classically known as Arianism, so it's an old belief, this is where they go. But in our text, we see Paul call Jesus the firstborn over all creation. Now, what, what does that mean? What does that mean exactly? Right? Again, there are those that would go and, and use this to argue that Jesus was God's first and greatest creation, but that's not what the Apostle Paul's saying, and we know that from the sweeping testimony of Scripture as a whole, right? Not reading um, passages out of context, not mindful of other passages of Scripture. But I think that we can take this phrase a couple of ways. Um, in some places in Scripture, the word firstborn, it can be used uh, um, to describe chronological birth. Right? We see that as it relates to Jesus as Mary's firstborn son in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, which we think about that passage a lot at Christmas time. But in Jewish culture, firstborn was less about birth or birth order and more about title and more about inheritance. For instance, we see that God ordained things such that Jacob, not Esau, received Isaac's blessing, right? Jacob being the younger and Esau being the older. We see Jacob, who's the younger, take the birthright of Esau, Genesis chapter 27. We also know elsewhere that Jesus is called the only begotten Son of God, right? John 3.16, a very familiar passage for all of us. So if we take firstborn to simply mean first one born, it doesn't, it doesn't harmonize, it doesn't square well with other passages of Scripture. But by Paul using firstborn, he has in mind both that Jesus is the rightful heir, right? He, he has authority, right? And that he is before all things. And we see that phrase explicitly in verse 17. Now, you may be sitting here wondering what this all has to do with Jesus as creator, and I want to show you the connection, because if we zoom out even more in our passage, we see that this verse is connected to Paul's claim that Jesus is, in fact, creator. Look back with me. I'm going to read verse 15 again along with verse 16. Is the image of the invisible God, right? The firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Right? Paul, he isn't just reminding the church and reminding us so many years later that Jesus is pre-existent, though he is pre-existent. He's even painting a fuller picture for us. He's painting a picture of what one scholar calls the cosmic Christ. And I, I love that title, the cosmic Christ. Jesus is the key to everything that has been made. That same scholar, he says, whatever figures in Jewish literature, canonical or otherwise, may have, um, they may have pre-existence predicated of them, but to none of them are such cosmic activity and significance ascribed. So Christ is before all creation, and he's the heir of all creation. In other words, Jesus is over everything. This is because he is this, the, the cosmic Christ. And Paul grounds Jesus as the image of God and as Jesus as the firstborn of creation in him being this cosmic Christ, the cosmic 
creator. Again, verse 16, by him all things were made, right? All things, not some things, but all things. And Paul says that they were created through him, right? Through Christ, and they were created for him, which means he owns everything. I know that it may not look like it at times when we, you know, are are trying to pay attention to the things going on around us, but Jesus really does own everything, including you and me. He owns us. He owns every rebellious molecule that will one day call him Lord. This is why Jesus came as a man in the first place. And as the Son of God, as the second person of the Trinity, active in creation, this world belongs to him. And he would see it redeemed. He would see it redeemed. He would see it saved. He would see the dominion mandate given to Adam and Eve accomplished. You've heard the saying, if you want something done right, what? Do it yourself. Now, I don't want us to get the impression that Jesus' work was plan B to the work of the first Adam, because that's not the case at all, right? Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. But what I'm saying is that only the creator of the world could set things in the world right, right? Only the creator of the world could set things in the world right. And this passage, it preaches that to us. And how far does the rule and reign of our creator, this cosmic Christ, how, how far does it extend? It extends again to everything. Look back at the text. Jesus created the heavens and the earth. Jesus created what is visible and invisible. Jesus created thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers, which kids means the unseen cosmic forces and the different ranks of angels, both fallen and unfallen. Jesus created everything. Hebrews 1.3 quoted this already, but God has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. And because Jesus is the heir of all things he created, right, that means, again, that he rules it all. Right? He's truly over these things. There's no place that can or will escape the reign of the Creator. So Jesus is all over all things. We need to remember that. Right? We need to confess that. Now, two more things shorter for us. If you're taking notes, I won't spend as much time on these last two things, but they're just as important. Jesus is the sustainer of all things. Jesus is the sustainer of all things. Verse 17, he is before all things, right? I made reference to that a minute ago. Literally, he comes before, right? And in him all things consist. In him all things, some of your translations say, in him all things hold together, right? They hold together, right? Jesus is the type of creator that sustains his creation. In other words, he isn't hands off, right? There are some types of creators, especially like creative entrepreneurs, right? They have a great idea and they get something started. Maybe it's a business. And after they get it started, these creative types can often get bored and they move on to the next thing, right? And the next idea. And we need those types of creatives because there's a lot of amazing things that would have never gotten started had they not been a part of that. But Jesus isn't that type of creator, right? He, he isn't a creator that set the world in motion along with the Father and the Spirit and then became hands-off, right? Paul says elsewhere of Jesus as sustainer, 
Uh, and again, I, I, this is a, a verse I've referenced already, but he talks about Jesus, who's he's the brightness of his glory, he's the express image of his person, speaking of God, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. Right? Jesus, he presently upholds everything. He presently upholds everything. So he's creator, and he is the creator who providentially cares. He providentially governs. He providentially maintains his creation. Just another comment from from a commentator. He says, he, Jesus, he, he maintains the delicate balance necessary to life's existence. He quite literally holds all things together. He is the power behind every consistency in the universe. He's gravity and the one who keeps all the entities in space, in their motion. He's the energy of the universe. Now, that commentator is not saying that Jesus is you know, that, that God is the trees or God is the air, or that, that sort of kind of philosophy, if you will. But what he's saying is that apart from Christ, there's chaos, right? Apart from Christ, there's chaos. And this isn't just true of creation, this is true of morality, right? It's either Christ or it's chaos. And what does Jesus as sustainer What does denote for us, if not his nearness to us, which is worthy of our contemplation, that this cosmic Christ, who maybe we're tempted to believe is so far from us, he's near us, right? And his sustaining work is evidence of his nearness to us. You've heard me say this before, but the very reason that you just took a next breath and you didn't drop dead in the pew and I didn't drop dead here behind the pulpit is because our Creator is also our sustainer. And He's ordained it so that we take our next breath. He's intricately involved in our lives. That should comfort us. He's near us. As non-Christians, that should, by the Spirit of God, motivate us to find refuge in Him. Because we'll either confess Him as Savior and that will be everlasting comfort or we're going to experience Him as the cosmic judge over all of creation. Final thing this morning, Jesus created the church. Jesus created the church. And by church, I mean every true believer that has ever existed and ever will exist. The invisible church. And if it weren't for Jesus, the church would not exist there would be no bride. There would be no people to constitute a body. Look at the last verse, verse 18. He's the head of the body. He's the one in charge, right? Who's in charge of Deer Park Fellowship? It's not me or the elders. It's Christ, right? If it were me or the elders, this would be pitiful, pitiful, right? It's Christ who's the head, especially the other elders. I know them, guys, and trust me, Verse 18, he's the head of the body, the church, who's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence, right? Be first, be head, be chief, But there's that word again, firstborn there, but this time it's related to the resurrection of Jesus, right? Jesus is the beginning, and according to the language of the Apostle Paul, he's the first to bodily and eternally resurrect. We may think of Lazarus, right? He resurrected Lazarus from the dead, but Lazarus died again, right? right? That enemy that is death, 
still waited for Lazarus. Lazarus is still waiting on his resurrection. Jesus was the first to bodily and eternally resurrect. And he was the first one to do that because he's the only one deserving of that. He's the only one deserving of that. He's the only one deserving of eternal life. So he's the first and he's the rightful heir of the resurrection life. In fact, he called himself the resurrection and the life. John 11, verse 25. Now, here's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus created the church by making us, you and I, co-heirs. We're co-heirs. That's incredibly good news for us because we're undeserving of being co-heirs. But it's done according to the sheer grace and mercy of the Lord. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 to 17. The Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit, with us, that we are children of God. And if children, if we're children of God, if we've been adopted, if we've been brought into the family, right, it says then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Romans 8, 16 to 17. Right, we rightfully inherit what Jesus alone earned. Right? And as co-heirs, his resurrection means our future resurrection. Right? Jesus created the church. He made all of this possible, right? Which means that we see Jesus not just as the creator of all things visible and invisible, but we see him along with the Father and the Son as the creator of new creation, right? So he's the creator of new creation. That's why we gather every single Lord's Day, is to celebrate new creation. That's why we don't meet on Saturday when God rested after he created all things. We meet on Sunday to celebrate that the resurrection of Christ was the inauguration of new creation. And he made that possible. And what are we celebrating on Sunday if not Christ and his role in bringing about that new creation, which again begins with us, right? Christ made new creation possible by being firstborn from the dead. And he did this by resurrecting in our world. And because of that, not only are we made new, but the Lord's making everything new. He's making all things new. And we know that that will come definitively. That will be fully realized when Christ returns. Right? Not only will we receive our glorified bodies on that day and be finally conformed into the image of Jesus, but all of creation will be transformed, definitively transformed on that day. So this morning we come, we remember Jesus is over all things. We remember that Jesus sustains all things, and we remember and we celebrate that Jesus created the church. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? God, we thank you for this time that we've had together in your word. God, we thank you for your grace in our lives. God, we thank you that Jesus is such a, a worthy Savior and has done everything necessary for us to be made right, God. And Lord, we do look forward, God, and our future hope of Christ returning, God, and us being able to spend an eternity with you without any hindrances of sin and sorrow. And Lord, we come and ask that you would Help now remind us of our union with Jesus as we partake of the Lord's Supper together. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
This is the portion of our service where we come to the table, and if you're a guest with us, we don't 